Hi again. Welcome back to The Savvy Psychologist. I'm Dr. Ellen Hendrickson, and every Friday, I'll help you meet life's challenges with evidence-based research, a sympathetic ear, and zero judgment. So this week, we are in for a treat. We're lucky to have with us Tiffany Dufu. And Tiffany was named by the Huffington Post as one of 19 women who are leading the way amongst luminaries such as Hillary Clinton and Diane Sawyer. She's currently the chief leadership officer to Levo, a networking platform for millennials, and was a launch team member to Lean In. She lives in New York City with her husband and two children. Tiffany, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Ellen. Absolutely. I'm so excited to talk to you. Uh, we were chatting before the show, and I was saying that that your book is one of the favorites of mine that I've read recently. I was really impressed, and I'm so excited to talk to you about oh, it. thank you. Yes. So in your book, you challenge the notion that in order to have it all, women have to do it all. Therefore, the title of your book is Drop the Ball, Achieve More by Doing Less. And under normal circumstances, dropping the ball is a bad thing. So it's, it's you know, dropping the ball is screwing up through our own negligence. But you have another definition. So please tell us about that. Yes, absolutely. You know, I used to be someone who was terrified of dropping the ball, which is why I was the person that needed to write a book called Drop the Ball. And in all transparency, I didn't just decide that I was going to drop the ball. What happened was that I was or at least I felt that I was performing flawlessly at home and at work. And then this life-changing event happened, which was the birth of my first child. And on my first day back from maternity leave, it was a disaster. And I started to get very overwhelmed and stressed. And I didn't know how to get the help that I needed. And eventually I did the one thing that I was most terrified of doing, which was dropping the ball. And literally, I stopped being able to respond to emails and phone calls and parking tickets and birthday invitations in the way that I felt was so important in order for me to be a decent human being. And what I discovered is that the world doesn't fall apart, right? that no one came to read me my Miranda rights because I hadn't paid the parking ticket. No one called me to say I wasn't going to be your friend anymore. And so over time, I developed this as a strategy. And so for me, dropping the ball is less about making a mistake or failing to take timely action. For me, dropping the ball is about releasing unrealistic expectations that we were supposed to do it all in the first place. And that's so important. And uh, another reason I'm excited to talk about you is because in your book, you you tell a lot of stories about exactly how you did this. And on The Savvy Psychologist, we're all about you know, taking action and, you know, striving to give listeners like concrete tips to make their lives happier and healthier. And so I liked in the book how you didn't just tell us what the problems were. You told us exactly how you and your husband and this village of people who love you fixed them. And so my favorite story in the book was when you first decided to drop the ball. So your resolve was tested by this really funny but really important story about your family's mail. And so can you tell us what happened and why it was so important, especially in those early days of learning to let go and release those unrealistic expectations? Yes. So I used to feel it was very important to retrieve the mailbox every day, the mail from the mailbox every day. And 
to sort the mail, to get rid of the junk mail, to deal with what was in the envelope so that it didn't pile up. But I reached a point in my evolution where I had decided that I would delegate with joy this task to my husband. It occurred to me he could actually check the mail. He has a key to the mailbox. And I did so. And he, like a very wonderful, typical husband, said, sure, babe, gave me a kiss on the forehead. It's like, this is great. The next day, he went to the mailbox. He retrieved the mail. He put it on the kitchen counter, but he didn't open an envelope. This happened the next day as well. He did retrieve the mail. He put it on the kitchen counter. But again, he didn't open an envelope. And I, in an effort not to micromanage and in this process of trying to drop the ball, decided I would not say anything about it. Maybe he had a strategy. He was going to do it all at once on a weekly basis. And unfortunately, a lot of other things were happening in our lives and colluded. He ended up leaving. I ended up getting overwhelmed with managing a toddler morning sickness because I had found that I was pregnant, working full time. And the mail basically piled up to such a ridiculous level that it, the pile of mail actually started talking to me. Um, <laughs> and It was three months, if I remember it correctly. Is that right? Three months uh, of yeah. opened mail eventually that was sitting on top of our kitchen counter. And what was amazing about the process was that in the beginning, the voice that I heard would try to make me feel terrible about not managing the mail. You're so irresponsible. That's probably a birthday party invitation. Someone's going to feel that you're very rude. You know, the police are going to come and get you. This is going to ruin your family's life. But over time, as the pile of mail grew, my obsession started to justify my actions. So eventually the voice would say, oh, well, you could possibly be responsible for this mail because you would have never let it get to this point. <laughs> and over time, my anxiety about the mail began to wane as the more it piled up, there weren't any real consequences. All the things that I was so fearful about, they just didn't happen. They just didn't manifest. And the irony was that when my husband came home to find three months of unopened mail, literally spilling over our kitchen counter for the first time in our relationship, he seemed stressed about the mail, right? So I had grown totally comfortable with it and he felt like it was a lot of mail. He eventually did go through all of the mail for the next 48 hours. There was the paper shredder going. <laughs> he had to spend another 48 hours on the phone dealing with the implications of that action. But what it taught me was one, everyone has a threshold and I just had never gotten to my husband's threshold before. But once I did, it gave me such faith that he can take care of it. He can handle it. But the other piece was that I realized it's not when you delegate something that the ball actually passes. It's only after you let it go that it's possible for someone else to step in and then pick it up. And you'd mentioned that you're in faith in his capabilities, that he has a different threshold and that you just never let it get there, but that he can take care of it. And then that part of the story is that you needed to let him. And can we talk about mindset for a moment? So you talk in the book about myths we need to let go of regarding men's capabilities. And so why do so many of us women make these assumptions and how can we learn to let them go? Well, I think that we should um, cut ourselves even more slack than that. I don't think that we choose to make the assumptions. I believe, as I thought about my own journey, that we are socially conditioned to believe 
to, to have these beliefs and to have these stereotypes. One of the exercises that I encourage people to do, especially empowered, ambitious women who feel that they're making all of their own choices, which I used to be one of them, <laughs> is to think about the roles that you occupy in your life. Our first one was often daughter. Maybe we became a sister, a student, a worker. At some point, we might become a wife, a mother. Um, by nature, we default to putting good in front of all of these roles. So it's not sufficient to be just a daughter. We strive to be a good daughter and a good student and a good worker. And to just ask yourself in relationship to your roles, question number one, what does a good ex do? Right? What does a good sister do? What are the behaviors associated with a good wife or a good student or a good worker, right? Coming in before everybody else, leaving after everyone else, like responding to your little sister's text messages within two minutes, right? And the second question is, how do you know that that's what a good ex does? How do you know that a good wife checks the mail every day? and sorts through it? How do you know that a good mother is there when her child takes her first steps? And it's an important exercise to do because we very quickly realize that very little of our be- the behaviors associated with the roles that we occupy and that we're trying to fulfill on a daily basis originated with us, right? Hmm. They came from the women who we observed or the men who we observed, our family. I grew up in the church, so a lot of the people in the church television. When I grew up, I used to watch The Cosby Show and I was going to be Claire Huxtable. Mm -hmm. I was going to have perfectly feathered hair and flawless makeup and these beautiful outfits that would literally flow when I walked into a room and my house was going to be clean. And I was going to have five perfectly well-behaved college-bound children and make partner at law firm in the second season. Right? Right. And it wasn't until later in my evolution that I realized well, she was kind of ridiculous. What, well, how many women do you know that have five children and make partner at a law firm? And what you realize is, wow, I've really been living someone else's script, someone else's story. She was, and that she was fictional, you, right, right. That's yeah, right, yeah. that's right. But we, it doesn't occur to us as right. we're in the midst of our own journeys right. and that we should rewrite those job descriptions, mm, mm-hmm. that we should rewrite those expectations. But that's that's been a really important um, exercise for me because it frees me from the guilt of the second piece, which is some of these stereotypes that you were mentioning, which mm-hmm. is that men are useless. Mm-hmm. I feel so terrible when I think about the fact that for many years in my marriage, while I felt that my husband was a good provider, I felt he was kind of useless on the home front, mm-hmm. um, that he wasn't there, that he wasn't present. This idea that, well, because he's at the office so many hours, then he's not able to chip in at home, completely blanking on the fact that I was at the office all day and I was like ordering the groceries on fresh direct, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Like, why is it, why wouldn't, why wouldn't his physical presence, why would that prevent him from doing the same things that I do? But I think the most insidious and the most damaging is this idea that he doesn't know what's best, that he doesn't know what's best for children, Mm -hmm. that he doesn't know what's best for our family. This idea that um, almost as if they don't know how to have our best interest at heart. And, you know, I think it's damaging, particularly because men have this ball that I feel that they need to drop to, which is this unrealistic expectation that they should strive to be breadwinners at all costs, even the cost of spending time with their families, even the cost of supporting the women in their lives. So, you know, part of the book is really about my journey to release these unrealistic expectations and in dropping the ball, discovering that you know, he's actually amazing. Mm-hmm. 
And he actually does way more than I thought he did. And he's so much better at it. And I had an experience just yesterday with that, where I realized, and and it had to do with our daughter who is having difficulty in school. She's having these emotional outbursts. There are times in school where she's sitting out and not participating and not engaged. And so it's having an impact on her education. And I thought maybe there's something physical happening because she complains about her tummy. Um, So I've taken her to see like a specialist. I've taken her to see a psychologist, you know, maybe something's happening with my daughter. Well, I had to go off on a book tour. So I haven't been as engaged on the home front. And I've noticed that since I've basically been gone for the past few days, we've gotten these amazing emails from my daughter's teacher saying that it's like night and day. She just, she's so engaged during the day. She's happy during the day. There have been no outbursts. And so I asked my husband, I said, what's been going on? And he said to me, oh, he was like, I just had to nip that in the bud. I said, well, what did you do to nip it in the bud? Well, my daughter just had a birthday. She got a ton of gifts for her birthday. I think it's important to express gratitude. So while I was here, I made her write thank you notes to everyone, but she still hadn't actually opened the packaging of the gifts. Mm -hmm. And my husband basically told her that for the rest of the week, she needed to manage her emotions at school and she needed to engage at school and do what she was supposed to. And if she did that this week, she could open the gifts. (laughs) And I thought, okay, well, what's going to happen when the gifts run out? And he was like, well, when the gifts run out, we'll know that our daughter is perfectly capable of managing her emotions and engaging at school and that there's nothing wrong with her except that she's stubborn just like her mother. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) And I thought, wow, see what happens when you leave, when you, when you know, when you're not present. I could give so many examples. That's just one. Yeah. And and so the story in the, in the book that started this, where you realize that he actually does more than you initially thought that he did and where you realize that he wait he's actually pretty good at some of this stuff was there's this there's this story that sounds you know pretty unexciting on the surface because it's an it's about an excel spreadsheet of household tasks but it's really a story about aligning expectations and clarifying roles and so and this this spreadsheet really turned you guys into a team and it helped you stop feeling resentful at this perception you know that you did 95% of the work so can you tell us about that, that that system and how yes. it changed the way that you and he run your household. And to brief listeners, the name for this system is the Management Excel List, affectionately known as MEL. Yes, absolutely. It's made all the difference in the world. Um, I, as many women who were in the workplace, lead teams all the time at work. And I noticed one day that I had launched a project by asking my team to brainstorm all of the things that were required in order for this project to be successful, and then collectively assigning tasks based on who's was good at something, you know, what role people played. And I realized, you know, this is not how I manage my home. You know, at home, I, everything's on my list. I do everything because I think I can do it better than everybody else. And I'm quite resentful and it doesn't work. And maybe this thing that I do at work, maybe I should try doing this at home. And so for the first time ever, um, which I encourage all women to do or anyone who's managing a home to do, I got out everything that's required to manage our home onto an Excel spreadsheet. And I literally put everything from, you know, doing our taxes to vacuuming, to cleaning out the refrigerator, to washing the car. And then I started putting columns um, next to them. And the first column I actually had put was myself. And I thought, no, I'm going to put my husband's name first and I'm going to give myself a column. The most important column, Ellen, turned out to be the no one column that I added. And then I started by putting X's 
in my column next to all of the things that I did and got halfway through before I realized, actually, I would never do this to my team at work. I would never launch the project starting off by proving to them that I do more than they do, right? Right. As a leader. And so I deleted all of the X's and I went to my husband and I said, I have a great idea for how we can avoid the male situation like we had before. And he was in. He was like, <laughs> of <"Yeah>, course. <laughs> yeah. Can we, figure, can we do something right. to avoid that in the future? I said, I think that we should divide up what's required in order to manage our home. I thought that the exercise was going to involve us just putting X's in the columns. But the thing that you talk about that you mentioned was actually the first part of the exercise was my husband adding more things to the Excel spreadsheet that it never really occurred to me that he did in order to manage our home. So that was the enlightening piece for me. But the other enlightening pieces are one it was very obvious that even with two people in a home, and sometimes we have situations where we have single parents or where, you know, you don't have two people, there is still more to be done than what is humanly possible. That's really the great piece about like laying it all out is you have these expectations about all these things that need to be done, but you realize even with both of us putting all of these X's, we still can't do all of this. So we had to start putting X's in the no one column, which was basically our mutual agreed upon list of things that weren't going to get done that we decided we weren't going to blame each other for. And it in included things like washing the car. No one, we're just going to, we're not going to fold clothes. We're just going to wash the clothes and we're just going to pull the socks from the laundry basket. And what that did was it allowed us to move forward in our partnership without blaming one another um, for unmet expectations. But the other thing that it did that turned out to be brilliant, brilliant and beautiful was it gave us a list of things that other people in our village could do. And it's happening even today. People know that I'm on book tour. They're like, uh, Kojo's kind of holding down the fort. What do you need help with? And we always can go to our no one column and say, our car hasn't been washed for a couple months. We agreed that it wouldn't happen, but could you do that? Um, or we agreed that we wouldn't fold our clothes, but there is like a pile of clothes that could actually be folded. And what we discovered is when someone says, how can I help? And you have something very specific that you can give them to say, it fuels their desire to help. And that's in part how we've developed this ecosystem of support and this village of neighbors and community members who really are committed to our success and to our family is because we are always giving them things to do when they ask. And it sounds like your kids have columns now too. The list has, has evolved. Yes. yes, yes. They now have their own columns and they are a part of the recuration of the mail. So the great thing is it's not static. You know, every few months or so we have to say, well, I'm working on this project. Why don't you pick them up from school? Or why don't you go ahead and take care of the taxes? Or why don't you go ahead? And, and so it's really given us an opportunity instead of defaulting to gender norms, mm -hmm. which is what we used to do, just like the ringtone on your iPhone that you never, it never occurs to you to change it. Instead of defaulting to gender norms, now we're deciding who should do what based on who's available and my goodness, what people like, you know, it turns out that often the default on gender norms is for the woman to manage the kid's social calendar. But, you know, the person who's the social butterfly should be managing the social calendar. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's been just a really incredible tool. 
Um, one of the things that your husband is good at is like kind of being in charge of household repairs and whatnot. And so, but there's another story. So this is all, I'll make this our final story. So he replaced a leaky faucet from a continent away. <laughs> and it's important to note that you have, you have a love-hate relationship with this new faucet. So tell us what happened and your takeaway. Yes. 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 I was, it was a time when my husband was working out of Dubai or maybe he was in Lagos. He was in a foreign country and I'm rushing in the morning and realize that, our sink is leaking and it's going to create a problem and I have no time to do it. I've got to get our son to school. I've got a presentation. And so I just send him a text message that says, you know, kitchen faucet leaking. <laughs> and miraculously, although it's not anymore, you know, he's just, he, he does this all the time. He reached out to our super, somehow made it happen. And when I arrived that evening there, it was fixed and there was a new kitchen not sink, but the faucet mm -hmm. itself had been replaced. The challenge was, it was horrendous. It was a horrendous faucet. It was so ugly, Ellen. And of course, <laughs> if I had known that fixing it would have required a new one, I would have maybe stepped in and said, well, this is the one I like. And I thought about the next day figuring out how with my schedule I could replace it before I realized, Tiffany, you couldn't even fix it. That's why you sent the text message. You're going to have to let this go. And so it's such a reminder to me because I still have not fallen in love with the faucet. I still think it's ugly every time I see it. But it's such a reminder to me every day when I walk into my apartment that dropping the ball has consequences, but that it can be also so rewarding. There are so many things. I've been able to run a women's leadership organization. I've been able to raise millions of dollars for nonprofits. I've been able to have the bandwidth to sit in coffee shops and write a book, Ellen. And there's no way that I would be able to do what I do if it weren't for things like an ugly <laughs> It is faucet. worth the cost of an ugly faucet. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Well, Tiffany Dufu, thank you so much for talking with us. This has been a wonderful conversation, and I wish you all the best with the book. It's, it's such a wonderful, inspiring story. Thank you. Sure. Tiffany Dufu has been included in Fast Company's League of Extraordinary Women and has been featured in the New York Times, the Seattle Times, and on NPR and Bloomberg. She's a sought-after speaker on women's and Generation Y leadership and is presented at Fortune Magazine's Most Powerful Women Summit and TEDx Women. Her book, Drop the Ball, Achieve More by Doing Less, is on sale now, so go pick up a copy wherever books are sold. If you can't wait for a sneak preview, all you have to do is keep listening. There's a clip from the Drop the Ball audiobook right after I say, thanks so much for listening and letting this show be a part of your life. Never miss a thing when you sign up for the newsletter at quickanddirtytips.com slash newsletters or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. You can also listen on Spotify, follow on Twitter at QDT Savvy Psych or like on Facebook where there are always links to episodes no longer available on iTunes. I'm Dr. Ellen Hendrickson, and The Savvy Psychologist is strictly for informational purposes and doesn't substitute for mental health care from a licensed professional. I'll see you all next week for a happier, healthier mind. And in the meantime, enjoy this clip from Drop the Ball. I have devoted my career to exploring the best strategies for addressing the dearth of women in American leadership. As head of the White House Project, a national women's leadership organization, and currently as chief leadership officer at Levo, a technology platform founded to help millennial women elevate their careers. I've seen that despite climbing to new heights on the professional ladder, women still rarely get to the top. 
we are 51% of the population. And by 2020, we are projected to be 47% of the labor force. Yet we still command only an 18% share at the highest levels of leadership. Smart executives are committed to changing this trend. Many Fortune 500 companies and major nonprofits have hired me to advise them on retaining and advancing women. And I do a lot of public speaking on the benefits of diverse leadership. Over the course of my career, I've been heartened by the growing support for women's empowerment in the workplace. But I'm mindful that most of the efforts involve either encouraging women to keep their feet on the gas pedal of their professional lives, equipping workplaces to support their female employees more robustly, or changing public policy to incentivize workplaces to do so. I'm a fierce proponent of each of these approaches, as we all should be. But I've come to realize that they don't give guilt-laden, anxiety-ridden, and exhausted women a practical, actionable solution to juggling the competing demands of work and home. This realization and the inspiration for this book came to me at the end of 2013. That year, I spoke on 60 stages to nearly 20,000 women, usually about what individuals and organizations can do to diversify leadership. Regardless of the content of my talk or the composition of my audience, the most common question at the end of my lectures was always personal. How do you manage everything you do? In response, I would say, I just expect far less of myself and way more of my husband than the average woman. That always got a laugh. Then I'd solicit what I thought were more pressing questions about how to navigate office politics or reform corporate and government policies. Despite my best intentions, women were inevitably eager to return to the logistics of my personal life. Details that seemed mundane to me, like how my husband and I coordinated school drop-offs or camp shopping lists or evening work events, seemed fascinating to them. One day, after yet another experience like this, I made the connection. I finally understood that when women kept asking, how do you manage it all? They were really wondering, how can I manage it all? Drop the ball is my honest answer to their question. It is the story of my three-year journey to figure out what really mattered to me, how to achieve it, and what structures of support I needed to put in place to make it possible. The situation I was in on my first night back from maternity leave, feeling helpless and confused, angry and resentful of the person who was actually in the best position to help me, is not uncommon. Many women experience the struggle of home lives that become more demanding and time-consuming right at the point when their careers need the most attention, energy, and creativity. This is a story of how I learned to excel at a purpose-driven career, nourish my marriage, raise happy children, give back to my community, sustain meaningful friendships, and be healthy and fit all at the same time. But Drop the Ball is more than a personal memoir. It's also a manifesto. I want women to know that their individual problem is a collective one too. The research is unequivocal. 
The most complex problems are best solved by a diverse group of people. Yet the highest levels of leadership are glutted with the same type. Male, white, straight, able-bodied, and wealthy. This has been true since the dawn of our country, two and a half centuries ago. Don't get me wrong. Like many of our founding fathers, today's corporate decision makers are accomplished, smart, and well-meaning. It's just that now that it's the 21st century, their lens is too narrow to address gigantic problems like economic inequality, climate change, terrorism, or the decline of America's educational system. If we care about these problems, we have to care about the women whose help we need to solve them. Today, women are half the workforce, but at our current rate, it will take 100 years for women to be half our leaders. The very future of our society rests on women's ability to get past middle management and to thrive in the process. We need a drop-the-ball movement, not just to prevent working mothers from crashing, but to fast-forward history.